people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um. Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to Purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival, hoping to win a prize. What are you gonna win? Under the Silver Lake. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Good to be here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Tim Luz. Mike White, there's nine letters in that. That's got to mean something. Hang on, hang on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out. I'm going to work on this. November 2022 continues with a look at David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. Released in 2018, the film stars Andrew Garfield as Sam, a slacker who's about to be kicked out of his apartment and loses his car. He becomes entranced by a neighbor at his apartment complex who disappears, setting Sam on a path filled with dog killers, pop music, and secret codes. We will be attempting to crack the code and ruin this movie as we go along, so if you haven't seen Under the Silver Lake, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Jedediah, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? I saw it shortly after it came out on the DVD in 2019. It's one I was I was interested in. I, I had seen It Follows, and I enjoyed it. But when I saw the trailer for Under the Silver Lake, I thought, ooh, 
that actually looks like it's maybe more up my alley. And I really enjoyed it when I saw it. I was about, I don't know, half an hour into it when I thought I got nervous that it wasn't going to do what it was, its ambitions were were setting it for. But uh, but no, I, I thought it really uh, did everything it was trying to do pretty well. And I was, I was very pleased with it. And I, I came back a couple of years later maybe a year and a half later, late 2020 or so, and and watched it again. And I thought, oh, man, it, it was better than I thought the first time. So no, I, was, I was happy to, to revisit it for this because um, I enjoyed it a lot. It tickled me. And how about you, Tim? I remember being really impressed by It Follows, Mitchell's previous film, and very much like, oh, whatever this guy does next, I wanna, I'm interested in it. And watching the trailers and waiting for it to open to the movie theater. I was very excited. And of course it never really opened wide at movie theaters. So eventually I caught up with it in streaming. I had kind of the same reaction of, Oh my God, I hope this movie kind of sticks the landing of where it's going. Cause I'm really enjoying it. And it's one that I quite enjoyed, but really stuck in my head afterward. It was one I couldn't really quite get out of my head. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and revisiting it again and seeing all the weird layers and all the bizarre games that Mitchell is playing with the audience. I've really, really grown to appreciate it. It's, it's a movie that I enjoy so much. I find it a little dangerous because it's kind of like watching the shining where you can start to feel yourself kind of go down the rabbit hole and you might not come back up. I'm a very bad Michigander. I knew about it follows, but I didn't see it theatrically. I didn't see it until way after it came out on DVD. When I saw it, I was just like, meh, I, it didn't grab me. I didn't realize that the same guy who did that did this movie. Again, Bad Michigander. I heard about it. I remember hearing that people didn't like this movie. And I was like, well, I'm going to give it a shot. And I watched it. And I have to say, I wasn't impressed. I was just like, whatever. But there was something. There was some sort of kernel in there that said, I need to revisit this. I need to come back to this movie. So that's how it ended up on the list for this year. Because I knew that there was more going on, that it wasn't just kind of this slacker noir type of thing, that there were more things to it. I didn't think it was trying to be too clever for its own good. I was like, he's he's really going for something. Kind of like you guys were saying, he's going for something. Does he succeed? I'm not really sure. First time viewing, I would say no. Second time viewing, yeah, I think so. And the third time I watched it, I was like, all right. I can get into the groove of this movie. And I think part of it is it takes so many like hard lefts that if you're with the movie on the first time and all of a sudden it veers off to the left, you might be like, whoa, wait a second. And you might still be going in that same direction and just crash yourself right out of that front windshield and never recover. But I would say second, third time, there's some really good stuff in here. I had a lot of fun with this movie on subsequent viewings. It's so uh, entertaining and just dense that you got to let it wash over you that first time and and maybe the second time, too. But it is a movie that rewards multiple viewings. The trick is not to lose your mind the way the protagonist clearly is losing his mind trying to pick it apart. You know, if you pick the whole thing apart, I don't think there's anything life life changing uh, to be gleaned from it. But it is fun. You can get into that and call it fun. It's kind of like doing the crossword puzzle or something like that in the uh, New York Times. Like, if that's not what you're into, don't don't bother doing it. But but it's amusing. It's and it's it's rewarding in on a very small small scale that way. And, and I think it's impressive, very impressive to put together and make make a cohesive uh, piece out of it. That that's 
says a lot about the talent behind the film. I feel like just the presentation of it. I mean, it's one of those movies you could just kind of turn off the sound and just from the cinematography, the editing, it's so beautifully made and just pulls you right in. But also, I just appreciate that Mitchell is turning the film sort of into an interactive experience for the audience that you can't help but end up in the same position as Sam starting to see this stuff and go like, oh, wait a minute, hmm, wait, this kind of ties in with this and this could be this. And before long, you're making huge leaps in logic to try and make some of this fit together, either in the plot in the movie or the other stuff that's going on in the background of scenes that just starts to reference each other and, and lead to this other weird puzzle. Conspiracy theories have been around forever. But it feels like we live in a world of conspiracy theories now. So the first time I watched this, I think I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Enough with the conspiracy theories. Like, I'm tired of conspiracy theories. But it fits Sam. It fits this Andrew Garfield character because Sam is so interested in the puzzles more than he is in his own life. You know, that he is five days away when we meet him the first time. He's five days away from being kicked out of his apartment. He's got this shitty car that ends up getting keyed. I don't even know why he has a car, because it feels like everything, everything in this movie feels like it's walking distance. So I don't even know. Like, I was surprised when he had a car. I was like, well, whose car is that? That can't be his. And especially when he's, like, walking back from this party, I was like, I thought that was just, like, around the block. I don't even know why he's walking over here or why he's... He's, he's driving over here. But then again, nobody walks in L.A. So that's what the, the poetess said at one point. Yeah, he's so worried about that. He's not worried about a job. He's not worried about money. He's not worried about his life. Like, he makes fun of a homeless person at one point, and there's a couple homeless characters in here. He's this far away from being homeless himself. He is right there on the verge, and... The end scene of the movie is him losing his apartment, basically. So who knows where he's going to be the next day? Like day seven? I don't know where he's at. There's a lot of uh, denial in the character. You get the sense that part of his focus on these mysteries and conspiracies is so he doesn't have to deal with personal stuff. And every once in a while in the movie, we get a hint of what's really going on with him. What what has been happening in his life that he's kind of swept under the rug. Like he keeps talking about, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, things are good. Great. And it's not until... The next to last scene that he can admit, I'm not great, things are bad, and really actually confront that. Yeah, he's got his mom, who seems like she would help him out if he asked for the help, but he's not interested in asking. I don't know what he's supposed to be working at when he's lied to his mother and told told her that he's at work. I don't know what his day job is supposed to be, maybe what it once was at some point. We're just kind of dropped into this and like I said, he's just five days away from losing his place, though he does get an extra day thanks to the sheriff being nice to him. But, you know, he's he's walking into this coffee house. We get this big beware the dog killer that's been graffitied across the front window. He's there worried about getting his coffee. And, and it's like, again, dude, you're paying however much for this coffee you probably don't have two nickels to rub together, and you definitely aren't using it for your rent. It, yeah, you're right. He feels like he's just distracting himself to get along and spend so much time playing video games and masturbating and doing anything that he possibly can to not have to face the real world. It does feel like he was hurt by his former girlfriend. But again, I don't know how many years ago that was because it feels like a long time has passed. 
And really, I don't think I'm saying anything radical around here when I say that I'm pretty sure he's the dog killer, that he was so hurt by the girlfriend that he lost that he ended up become, becoming basically a psychopath and murdering dogs. Because when he gets stressed out, these women in the bathroom at one point, they're literally barking at him. He has dreams about the mysterious woman, Sarah, that disappears. She starts barking at him. And then he has that crazy dream where he's walking along the path that we'll see him walk in real life later. And there's uh, the dog killer and the, the dead dog there. And then the, the man who's pulled apart as well. Uh, these dream sequences come out of nowhere and they are fascinating. The key to the success of this movie, especially for a first viewing, is not worrying that it makes sense so much as worrying that you're going to bore the audience. And I think every every scene has got something I think is is pretty interesting in it so that I, I don't have to dwell so much on, uh, you know, am I following what's going on? Am I picking up all the clues? There's, there's just constantly a tour of L.A., of this neighborhood in L.A., of all the strange characters, the ridiculous parties. The whole scene is very interesting, and I, I don't blame anybody for saying this movie is not for me because these are people that frankly i would probably hate to spend time with in real life but i'm very much enjoying hanging out with them dropping in on them you know without having to interact with them via this movie the dog killer is i mean we might as well get that out of the way it's been brought up but that's one of the the main mysteries to the film uh there's a there's someone killing the dogs in the neighborhood and and there are posters for missing dogs up around the neighborhood and 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 more than one instance of uh, graffiti saying beware the dog killer posted around and we're never really uh, never really told who it is that's not entirely solved but we do have these clues that Sam does carry dog treats in his pocket he has an explanation for that later, but you know he uses it to to meet the Riley Keough character, or at least he ends up meeting her because of he's got dog treats in his pocket. And he offers one to her dog, and then she appears out of the shadows, uh, and who knows, maybe saves the dog's life by appearing there. <laughs> but it's never entirely spelled out. There are some people I've, I've seen say, "Oh yeah, obviously he's the dog killer," but other folks seem to think no. So I'm, I'm curious, do you come down on, on one side of that, either one of you? I almost feel like it's a Philip K. Dick thing where it's less is he or isn't he and more the fact that by the end, I think he's not even quite sure. Like when he's talking to the homeless king, it sounds like his answers are kind of like, yeah, this is why I have these, I think. And clearly the homeless king thinks that he might be the killer. I started to think there's a couple other different possibilities that too. Clearly we see there are coyotes around all over the place. Maybe one of these coyotes is the dog killer. And supposedly that's something that actually happens in the Silver Lake area. There's a lot of coyotes. But also I started to look at the the dog killer thing as almost more this metaphor for Hollywood itself and what it's doing to all these women. If you look at the dogs, these innocent, sweet dogs as kind of representing these women, the idea of all these women just being exploited and murdered and ground down by Hollywood in general, as we're sort of seeing with this bizarre conspiracy where it's with these three women being pulled down under for these rich guys basically to be their sex slaves in weird underground tombs that maybe it could symbolize that as well. I did wonder when we see like the beware the dog killer graffiti since it's in black Sharpie and we see him using a black Sharpie 
And then there's, you know, the red paint. I was trying to see if there's any red paint in his apartment, if he's actually leaving these messages all over the place. And maybe he's not even realizing it. The one thing that I thought definitively made me think, no, he's definitely the dog killer, is the movie posters on his wall for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the Wolfman. Two stories about killers who don't know they're killers and, and you know, who change into taking on these these killer personalities at night and, you know, and, and lead, lead these two different lives separated, uh, separate from each other. And that seems to be what they're hinting at here. But there's so many, so many references to, to old, old movies. And, and it's fun to build a case. You could probably build a case the other way, too, if, if I thought about it. But no, the, the movie poster made me think, no, he's definitely the guy. He has all these movie posters, and they're almost always for horror films. And then he's got the Kurt Cobain poster, which was signed by Francis Bean, but signing Kurt's name, which just seems absolutely bizarre. But then Sarah, the the girl, the you know Cherche La Femme, she has all these things about how to marry a millionaire, and we keep going back to there being the three main women characters in how to marry a millionaire and then she even has three barbie dolls that are set up there's a moment where on screen you have the three women opposed and it's very similar to the three women that are next to the tv the three barbie dolls and then this whole thing throughout the whole movie you mentioned you know the three women that buried with the rich older man and you have that coming up again and again and again there's even one part where he's at a party and you have this woman who's reading it sounds like she's rehearsing for a role all these holy trinities of women thriving like plants under the heat of the city's male gaze three 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 and then you've got Jesus and the Brides of Dracula I mean we just continually go through this and it seems like we are constantly, and even later on, Sam is being helped out by these three girls that we've seen several times before that we realize they all work for this escort service. And it's him and these three girls, and they very much fit that pattern, again, just walking through these streets. And I don't know if we're supposed to always get like blonde brunette redhead out of this group, but it really feels like he's playing with that as well. I know like How to Marry a Millionaire, we didn't have that mixture, but... It really feels like he's hitting on this whole, like, one of each, this variety pack for each time there are these groups of three women throughout the entire film. One other beautiful touch with that, that one clip from How to Marry a Millionaire, you have Lauren Bacall pretty much predicting the end of the movie. Great big room full of nothing but rich millionaires and us. And that's exactly where they're going to end up. Yeah, there's a lot of Marilyn Monroe uh, imagery, too, between How to Marry a Millionaire and then the, he has the dream of Riley Keough recreating the stuff from the the Maryland swimming pool scene from Something's Gotta Give, which was the final movie uh, she was working on, the one she died while making. Um, and it's about a, a man whose wife uh, disappears, just like she disappears out of Sam's life. And he's left wondering what happened to her. Uh, the Marilyn Monroe character disappeared out of that one. I, I thought that was a nice, a nice touch. And we see multiple photos from that scene up on his fridge, which suggests it's in his brain. And that's why he had that dream, which opens up the question of how much of what we're seeing is inspired by all this pop culture that's kicking around his head. The other Maryland uh, bit I liked was the hobo signs, the two diamonds we learn later mean stay quiet. 
but uh, I just thought he, he finds them first in her apartment. He follows the white rabbit they're driving. <laughs> he follows them to a baseball diamond, and they get the message on the scoreboard of the baseball diamond. But diamonds are a girl's best friend uh, coming to mind with that, too. So watch a lot of Maryland movies uh, to prepare for this. <laughs> Well, then she's even got the roommates that are then going to show up again. You know, the blonde, and they're called in the, in, on IMDb, brunette roommate, blonde roommate. So, and yeah, maybe it's two blondes and a brunette is what it's supposed to be. But the three women at the end feels like it's redhead, blonde, and brunette. All I see is blonde, brunette, redhead. When it comes to that billboard, of the girl that says, I can see clearly now the contact ad. I think that's supposed to be Sam's ex-girlfriend. Is it that is, we- yeah. Okay, because then he meets her at a party later on, and it took me forever to figure out, oh, that's the girl from the billboard. And he says something like, oh, I saw your billboard, it's over here and over there. But I didn't realize for the longest time, and I think probably until I read the script, that that is his ex-girlfriend. Does that come up in the movie, or is that just in the script? You don't learn until later that it's his girlfriend. I think it clicks into place pretty easily when, when he does meet her at the party. I I kept getting a very uh, ga- Great Gatsby uh, vibe out of that from the, the billboard. I was going to say the same. The yeah. looking over the, yeah, so. It is funny to go back, though, because he keeps seeing that billboard and staring at it, and you're thinking he's seeing some clue or making some connection. It's not until later on you realize, oh, no, he's seeing his ex-girlfriend constantly right there in front of him, haunting him. Because they make a big deal in the screenplay. Like, he sees that billboard way earlier than he sees it in the movie. I think that's one of the first things. Like, after he gets his coffee, he's walking down the street and sees that billboard before he then makes it back to his apartment. Where we get to see what a perv he is. He is like, you know, we talk about this so much on this show. Just the whole voyeurism angle. And that he is just so openly voyeuristic. Just... Him there looking at all these other women in the apartment complex. It's a little Dixon Steel from In a Lonely Place type of thing, like looking up at Gloria Graham up in her apartment. He reminds me a lot of Gould's Philip Marlowe, just the parrot lady with the parrot that we never understand through the entire film. Just her being topless and feeding her parrots and stuff. It so reminded me of the, those three, I think it was actually, again, three women. There was a bunch of them. It was like, But there are like three girls across the way, right, that are like, hey, Mr. Marlowe, come on over. And it's, it's okay by me. I got to go get some cat food for my cat. I feel like those two, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but there's like a lot of DNA being shared between Philip Marlowe and Sam. But with Sam, he's just primed and ready for a mystery that he becomes. I can't even say he's a reluctant detective. It feels like he just really wants to detect and he'll detect anything, no matter how tenuous those connections are. There is no Pepe Silvia. The man does not exist, okay? So I decided, oh, shit, buddy, I got to dig a little deeper. There's no Pepe Silvia. You got to be kidding me. I got boxes full of Pepe. Yeah, the uh, the Topher Grace character, the bar buddy, gets uh, a couple little speeches where he goes into that and, and it's like there's no not really any subtext to the film because he's he's in there explaining the whole thing to us which is fine it's it's i actually really enjoy the topher grace performance in that he's I, but my my favorite my favorite topher grace bit is not either of his speeches but it's him playing super mario brothers and 
when he loses, and he just says, "That's my favorite line." And he's another voyeur. That whole thing with the drone and just the drone being right outside of that woman's window, and that she comes in and is framed perfectly in that footage, and that she just sits there and takes her top off, and then starts crying, and it's like did he pay you to do this? Like, why are you just sitting there crying? And meanwhile, the drone is just either the drone's getting closer or the, the drone has a zoom lens on it, but it just keeps moving closer and closer and closer. And I'm like, can't you hear that drone outside your window? Those things are noisy as fuck, man. That brought up two things for me. I kept thinking that scene early in blue thunder when uh, Roy Scheider and Daniel Stern yeah, hearing on the actors, <laughs> which is interesting. Cause I remember the original script for that. The Roy Scheider character was the villain and obsessed with numerology and was looking for all these signs and random occurrences that, you know, oh, they would kind of give him this direction he had to follow. But also, I kept thinking of Rear Window and Miss Lonely Hearts and that moment when they see her failed date and Jimmy Stewart kind of has this moment of, you know, maybe this isn't really an ethical thing I'm doing. Maybe this isn't fun because it's that moment when Sam's just kind of like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'll see you. And yet Tover Grace is still there just watching that for who knows how long. And of course, uh, body double, where the voyeurism is actually set up for him. Go look at this this time every night. She does this routine, and and yeah, and then he gets interested in her personal life after he's interested in her sexually. So the beautiful touch, and I never noticed it until I read the screenplay that that same woman shows up in the party that he follows the coyote to later on, and you can see her in conversation with somebody, and she's all smiles and all cheery. This idea that once she gets home from parties like that, she just goes home and breaks down and cries. I did not realize that. I, I don't remember reading that, but that's amazing because there was one scene, I think they're in the cavern, and there are so many shots of just these large groups of people. And I keep thinking, how many of these people were in that earlier scene and this later scene? Because it feels like we're getting a lot of familiar faces. Of course, people like Balloon Girl shows up a lot. I'm not sure what the character name is, but the actress who was in inside of David Robert Mitchell's first feature film, the uh, myth of the American sleepover and how she's up on screen at the, the cemetery. And then she's right in front of the screen as well. And then she ends up playing a major part of uh, the film. She just keeps showing up. There's so many faces that just keep showing up. So this whole thing of this woman, in the apartment also being at the party makes total sense because it just feels like we're recycling actors through the whole thing. We see the guy with the animal t-shirt in the coffee shop show up a couple times too in the background with other people who have the shirt. <laughs> yeah. And that animal t-shirt that plays right into even before the movie starts, you get those few notes from, is it the association forever? The association, love? Yeah. yeah. And that boom, 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 boom. And you get the, animals being shown in time with that before we even get the opening shot of the movie it's like wow okay i mean this movie is jam-packed do you remember what the animals are no it's a unicorn tiger snake lion well you take the first letter from each u-t-s-l and it's under the silver lakes so. nice which i was almost priming you for the other t-shirt that spells out uh, b-w-a-r-d-o-g-k-i-l-r beware, beware dog, dog killer, killer. <laughs> and see that's the thing once he puts something in there and you pick up on it you're like oh my god there's all this other stuff hidden in there isn't there and it, it starts you on this weird hunt did i read right that the fireworks that just suddenly show up and kind of really freak out sarah 
that they spell out in Morse code, I am Ascend, or something like that. The thing that the rich asshole keeps saying, like, whoa, we're going to ascend, we're going to ascend. I think it says, like, I am Ascended, or something like that. Yeah, it's it's like her signal that it's about to come, because you can see she's like, uh-oh, when she looks up at it. Yeah, no, I definitely thought that was her for her. But no, I didn't realize there was a Morse code or something. But I always thought, what a terrible way to communicate, because... If her roommates hadn't come home, you know, she might have missed the whole message. <laughs> but is it her and her roommates that are there at the end? They show them, but I, I don't remember if it's those three or if it's two other girls. But it feels like it's those three because they all just move out completely. I'm pretty sure it's those three. I think so. Well, the pirate connects oh, them. Jesus. The pirate is the uh, the guy who's getting all the things ready, I guess. It's like the gopher. <laughs> <laughs> fucking pirate i'm just thinking of fucking patchy the pirate from spongebob every single time i see that guy because he's the most cartoonish pirate i've seen in a long time what's that three bells well we all know what three bells means free ice cream the other thing that really connects this i mentioned the association and that's one of the older songs in this this plays so much it's odd it's almost like a nostalgia piece for like the 90s and maybe early 2000s when it comes to music and just all of the music that plays throughout this that we have jesus and the brides as this featured band and their music has secret codes which then takes us to what i thought was going to be the entire climax of the film which is the songwriter and then after he gets brained that's the end of it. Like, I was like, oh, well, this is this huge conspiracy of this one person who has been writing all these songs. Who controls him to write the songs? I thought we were going to go up to the next level, but we don't. We just kind of end that and then move on to something else because there are so many mysteries in this film. Well, he's kind of mid-level. That seems to be the thing that really drives a drives a stake through Sam's heart, this idea of all of his beloved pop culture the meanings that he would associate with it. No, there it's nothing. This guy was making a, a buck sending messages for the rich. All of your culture is just because of this horrible old fart in a room somewhere coming up with these songs just so rich people can go die under a mountain. Well, I love the, uh, that the medley of songs he plays, um, that, uh, most of them apply directly to the movie. Uh, the first one being crazy train, you know, which is clearly where Sam's at. And uh, also, Where Is My Mind by the Pixies and that that Backstreet Boys song, I Want It That Way, where he's just, the the refrain is, tell me why, why. tell me why, tell me why. Even when he breaks into cheers, considering how much people drink in this movie. (laughs) Here's the thing I thought was really weird that, I mean, with the songwriter, you looking at you have an actor who's being made up in a lot of makeup to look old and it's not even like a notable actor like some kind of big secret guest star it's this random guy who's in like the wolf of wall street and the drop and a few other things i thought that was a really odd choice i don't know if that was put in there because mitchell knew people would look oh it's a guy in makeup this must be somebody important and again it'd be another false lead or what well, another great pop song that they use in this movie that isn't part of that medley is What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And the whole backstory of that song of how the crazy guy attacked, who was it, Mike Wallace? Or was it Dan Rather? I just think it was Dan Rather. Okay, and just was like beating him mercilessly, saying What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And never, you know, we never know exactly why he was doing that. There's theories to it. Again, conspiracy theories as to why he was saying that, but... 
You know, there was a whole thing I read in the big book of conspiracies about, oh, Dan Rather was at Dealey Plaza and there was all this radio chatter and that was one of the things that was said and Dan Rather is in on the Kennedy assassination. It's like, wow, you know, we're going real deep here. That scene kind of plays out in the movie with Sam beating up um, Jesus there. That scene kind of plays out where he's like beating him up like, what's the secret code? Where does it come from? From Jesus' point of view, that's kind of what that is. <laughs> the song itself, though, if you divorce it from the story, is, you know, just kind of about a guy desperately trying to figure out what's going on in the world and being extremely frustrated. He can't understand what's going on, which, yeah. And, you know, the other that that, that plays during the, the old music night at the club. That, that hurts. <laughs> but, the, you know, the song that precedes it is Room Full of Asha. And the we come in on the line in that, that scene um, about being behind the movie scenes, you know, and playing 45s uh, incessantly. And even that applies absolutely to the movie so yeah great use of every bit of pop culture used you know pre-existing pop culture isn't you know nothing's accidental did he have backup choices for these you know everything seems so precisely tailored for this like what if they couldn't get the rights (laughs) to this or that like there's probably nothing on the cutting room floor because everything is so impeccably placed you know so precisely placed Again, whether it has anything particularly uh, interesting to say is, is one thing, but but just to to work as a as a single cohesive piece, everything had to come together just perfectly for it. And you know, I didn't read the screenplay, so I don't know if all those songs are referenced in the screenplay or things like that. But man, it seems like really really had to get everything perfect for. You know, if you pull one piece out, you got to change several scenes. I was trying to imagine how much they had to pay for rights for that scene for the songwriter where he's going from each song to the other. It's like, oh, my God, clearances on that must have been brutal. I don't want to besmirch anyone's reputation, but it seems very interesting. You were talking about how the songwriter is not a big star. It's not like they said, oh, we're going to get, I don't know, Bill Murray and put him in makeup and that's who's actually doing this kind of thing. It'd be great. It would be like his old medley of songs that he would do on Saturday Night Live occasionally. But Jimmy Simpson, the Alan character, I recognized him. I recognize, you know, Rex Lynn a little bit. I recognize, of course, Topher Grace. Of course, I recognize our main character of Andrew Garfield. Otherwise, you know, you're talking about how everything seems so planned out. Like, I don't recognize too many of the actors until you get to Patrick Fischler. And then it's just like, oh, it's Patrick Fischler. And I just love him. And I love when he shows up. And I think, if anything, this is kind of a little bit of a nod to Mulholland Drive, just with him having you know his presence in the movie. So much of this movie feels like Mulholland Drive, or even a little bit of Lost Highway, this whole thing, this mystery that doesn't necessarily 100% make sense at first blush. And it feels like we are really like, you know, talking about those left turns. It feels like you can make a left turn and suddenly, like, the man from another place would be there. It feels like this is that same LA that Betty and Rita are in, is the same LA that Sam is in. It's kind of embarrassing. Patrick Fischler's ties it all together so nicely while also 
spinning off, you know, red herrings. I mean, like he his his whole uh, thing about the owl woman, like took out the owl's kiss. You probably still have a movie, but you'd have to, you know, she plays enough of a background role that you know you couldn't just drop one scene with her in it. She'd have to drop several, and and Patrick Fisher gets maybe the funniest line of the whole movie where he's we're introduced to his home and is just packed with and in a nice tidy neatly organized house all this stuff it looks like a museum his house he's got all these masks of famous people life masks and he he goes through explaining what they are and how special they are and then he he has this moment where it looks like he's having an epiphany about his life and he says i really need to get a family and you you know we're all like yes you do like invest in something worthwhile and then he totally undercuts it by saying so i have something to leave this to (laughs) i just love the idea of having a family just so you can pass on your record collection or you know something like that that's it's amazing or those life masks where you've got, who was it? It was like Johnny Depp and somebody. Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Grace it's like. Kelly. Yeah. Lincoln was in there. <laughs> Miss Lonely Heart. Well, at least that's something you'll never have to worry about. Oh. You can see my apartment from here all the way up on 63rd Street? No, not exactly, but we have a little apartment here that's probably about as popular as yours. You remember, of course, Miss Torso? The ballet dancer. She's like a queen bee with her pick of the drones. Fischler is just so good at that sort of intensity, and you need that because you need somebody that Sam can look at and at least at this point in the film go, I'm not sure if you're right. And then, of course, a couple turns later, he's right along that path of, oh, this breakfast cereal must have the, the key that I'm looking for. Absolutely. You know, Fischler's character, he's one of the only characters who doesn't mention anything about the way Sam smells, which says something about most people know that Sam, Sam stinks. And, and he does, even before he gets sprayed by the skunk, people mention the smell around him. Patrick Fischler doesn't mention anything about the smell. Either he doesn't notice it or it doesn't bother him. And I, I think when Sam's around, air quotes, his people, it doesn't mean you know, it, it's not offensive to them. And like, like the the end of the movie, one of the reasons why I think it's kind of a hopeful, optimistic ending is because he's with the bird lady, and you know, the old older hippie chick, and you know, they've apparently consummated their neighbor status. She kind of likes the way he smells. She's like, "Is that patchouli?" <laughs> While she's kissing his neck, you know, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, you know, he's finally maybe found like he was trying to fit in somewhere that he didn't belong and maybe now he's accepting on some level i don't belong there i need to be at this other level and and his as much as his disdain for the homeless is expressed uh earlier you know that speech he gives about why he hates homeless people and how they're you know they're, they're just jealous they're watching everyone eat delicious foods and drink beer and fall in love. And then he sits in the the tomb with the the millionaire and his brides. And he says, we're going to eat delicious meals and drink wine 
and watch tea and have sex. And, you know, it is like this whole sort of class thing going on, this, this strata that Sam Desby wants to belong to a higher strata than, than he does. But I think at the end of the film, he does have that, that final shot of him looking kind of content for the first time in the movie. And I think it's, he's kind of found where he belongs a little bit. I don't know that he's moving in with Bird Lady or not, but there's there's something about she doesn't mind the way he smells and uh, feels relaxed enough around her. There's a lot of animal symbolism in this movie, and the skunk, I actually think, has a symbolic value in that sense. I think the skunk sort of represents his creepy conspiracy theory views, because the actress smells in his apartment before he gets sprayed, and we find out later that Sam is already looking for these patterns in media, but conceals it from her with his, his notes on Vanna White and her weird eye movements. So he's kind of already got it in there, but it's low level. And then as he gets pulled in the conspiracy further, he gets sprayed. And as he's, you know, doing the tomato juice bath to try and get rid of it, and she's still sitting there talking to him, he finally reveals his beliefs and goes a little too crazy with it. I've just, I just been thinking, why do we just assume that all of this infrastructure and entertainment and open information that is beaming all over the place all the time into every single home on the planet is exactly what we're told it is maybe there are people out there who are more important than us more powerful and wealthier than us that are communicating things and seeing things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us i think it's fucking ridiculous to assume that media has just one purpose right yeah oh you think that's weird a little you don't you don't ever think that maybe rich people know something that you and i don't Good restaurants, maybe. And that's when she says, you know what? You smell too much. I have to go. Bye. And then leaves. And I almost got this sense that everyone else smelling it is like they can sense that, oh, there's something wrong with this guy. There's something wrong in his thinking. And it just, it kind of pervades every room he goes into, every conversation he has. That poor actress, she just leaves. You know, she literally just leaves the movie. You know, we've got his sex scene with her at the beginning. And I love how... Each time we see her, she's in a different outfit. So, like, she's dressed like this kind of, I don't know, barmaid from Bavaria in the first time we see her. She's like, oh, I'm coming back from, you know, a a reading or whatever. And then the second time, she looks like Daryl Hannah from Kill Bill or something. It's just like, wow, what are these outfits she's in? And then she just pieces out, and then we never see her again. Like, there's a moment later on in the film where I'm just like, is she ever going to come back? But I think, yeah, to your point... His smell and his craziness drove her off. Also, I was thinking, while she's credited as actress, I wonder if the outfit suggests that she's working for that shooting star's escort service, too. And that's why she's dressed this way. Mm. Yeah, that would kind of make sense as well. Because that defensive way she goes, it's for a role when she's wearing that German outfit. (laughs) Saw somebody refer to Sam's character as an incel. In this, I could kind of understand what they were talking about in in, in the, the, the sort of casual attitudes he may have about what he's entitled to and things like that. But he's anything but celibate. He is hooking up left and right without putting much effort into it. Like women throw themselves at him. And it it made me smile thinking it's almost like a Mickey Spillane book or something like that where he is just irresistible to 
women, except he's not this alpha male tough guy. These mid-century pulp novels, which which the the movie is definitely playing with tropes from you know the, those those kind of crime stories, detective stories, where every woman is you find him irresistible, and like every man he encounters, he has to like dominate. That is kind of happening in this movie, except he doesn't look like a tough guy or you know a real lady killer. But he's he's constantly um, having women throw themselves at him, and he's beating the shit out of men. Except they're little kids, or they're old, feeble people, or you know, homeless people, like or a guy who's sitting on the toilet. Yeah, right. I mean, it is very much like uh, you know one of those uh, detective novels, except he's not the uh, yeah he's he's not that tough. <laughs> He's not that sexy, but uh, yeah, it's, I, I had a lot of fun with those. He's not, not celibate. There's a lot of this where I had to wonder if all he's imagining all this other stuff, maybe he's imagining some of these sexual encounters too. Maybe this is all in his imagination. Cause I've noticed a lot more watching movies like watching invaders from Mars recently and having much more fun imagining that the whole thing of, Oh, it's a dream or it's this thing is all in this person's head. It's not really happening. is much more interesting to me. And that's kind of how I watch this movie thinking a lot of this is not happening at all. He is possibly psychotic at this point, or he's just daydreaming a lot of this stuff. That's why that encounter with the girlfriend at the party strikes me. The way it's filmed, the handheld with this warped lens, I feel like that's one of the few true moments of the movie, that he awkwardly encounters this girl, doesn't know what to say, has this really awkward, oh yeah, good, good, bye, and that's it. That's like one of the few real moments we see him encountering somebody in the film. It's very fun to imagine that everything's a dream until you watch something like Joker and you're just like, oh, I just wasted my time watching this whole movie and it's all in his head. Let's say it can be handled a little bit better. There's definitely a lot of Hitchcock around here. We've got the Hitchcock grave, of course. When he's following in his car, he so reminded me of Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. Oh, when he's absolutely. Yep. Yeah, just going through, you know, basically spinning through San Francisco. But here it's Los Angeles. Of course, all the voyeurism, you know, you already mentioned Rear Window. So he's got a psycho poster on his wall. I was going to say he might be Norman Bates. He keeps, you know, talking to his mother. Well, and that's another one that the main character, the main blonde, disappears halfway through the movie. A lot of Hitchcock in there. We can get lost in the numerology of things, but I know that seven keeps coming up in the movie. Seven six is on the cookie that he eats. Seven five one over at the baseball diamond. I'm thinking that I'm supposed to be hearing sevens every single time they say Jefferson Sevens, the millionaire that has been killed or killed, quote-unquote, that moment at the party where they find out that he has been torched and all of those chimes that are going off on people's phones, that just really felt like a kiss-kiss-bang-bang moment to me where it's just like the vapidity of these Hollywood parties and just everyone like trying to keep up with each other and they all were getting the chimes of the news story all at the same time before even millicent the daughter gets the news about it and oh there's another one he hooks up with millicent as well or is just about to it feels like even though i like how she's like oh i'm we're pretending that we're making out so that we can (laughs) be out here in the middle of this lake and oops sorry reservoir and whoops i just got shot his palpable disappointment of we are we're just pretending (laughs) 
her murder, I that's one that I haven't quite understood yet. Who's trying to kill her and why? <laughs> assuming the conspiracy stuff is real, which I still don't, but assuming it was real, since it is her father and she took that thing from his office and clearly she's still trying to figure out what's going on is probably doing her own investigating. Somebody's probably like, yeah, we can't have that. And maybe tried to shoot the both of them and just got her. Uh, so Riley Keough had one of those wrist, uh, wrist you know, silver bracelets too. You know, at the beginning, I like that she says it's from an old boyfriend and his, his response, you know, is, Oh, old boyfriend thinking ex-boyfriend. But I think now we realize, no, he's old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's from her old boyfriend. But I love that that doesn't pay off till a long, long time later. Talking about the whole Hollywood angle too, that wonderfully strange scene where we get to see the beware the dog killer spray painted on the ground and just how Sam sees this very attractive girl starts following her. He's very into asses. He's constantly staring at women's asses and he's following this woman's ass like nobody's business. And then you start to notice all of these other women just kind of entering the frame and it looks like it's a casting session, but the guy who's there at the casting session, like a casting section session that looks like it's in a garage, and the guy who's there, like manning the door, quote unquote, looks like the biggest sleazeball in the entire world. It looks like a casting session for eight millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Joel Schumacher, the movie I was really, I revisited preparing for this. That I was really surprised how much. How similar it was was the number twenty three. Did you see? I to see that one. Did you see that one? I haven't seen that one well, either. Well, you don't. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, <what> I've heard. <laughs> but you know, it's about uh, Jim Jim Carrey's character goes nuts with conspiracy, you know, numerology stuff. When it came out, it was Corona, right? Corona. Corona is six letters. When you use Dematria and use say A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and you put Corona lined out at 66. So that's 666. But we found that out. So they're saying the white wing crazies found it out. So they changed it to COVID-19, which is C. What is this? C, right? The C, C yeah. Ovid. Look it up. Ovid means sheep. 19, military code for surrender. C, sheep, surrender but i had forgotten i'd seen it a while ago and i'd pretty much instantly forgotten it but uh watching it preparing for this his character is a dog catcher and he's obsessed with this uh blonde woman who kills herself and it seems like a little more than just coincidental that uh, they mirrored each other so closely. And the, the other film I thought about a lot was The Da Vinci Code that I watched for the first time preparing for this. It was just part of the culture. You know, I was a bookseller when Da Vinci Code came out. So, you know, I, I knew some about it. I'd never read it and I'd never seen the, the movie. But it, thinking about conspiracy movies and, and things like that, I, I knew enough about it to think I had to watch it. So I watch it and the, you know, spoiler alert for uh, the Da Vinci Code, it ends with Tom Hanks discovering the tomb, the elaborate tomb of uh, the woman he's been, uh, you know, trying to find 
for the the whole film, and he's he's like he's found this tomb, and it's under the Louvre, you know, and he's on on top of it, thinking about her, and it just that's basically where Andrew uh, Garfield ends up at the end of this movie, on top of the people buried under the Silver Lake. Anyway, I thought, well, this is almost like an atheist's Da Vinci Code or or something like that. You know, whether or not you have religious faith, you can kind of understand why someone would get whipped into real fervor if if they believed in the cosmic and eternal importance of these things. But, you know, when you, when you subtract religious faith or, or something eternal or, or spiritual from it, it all kind of looks like you're, you're just looking for clues in the, the cereal box and, and trying to make something significant out of it. So yeah, I, I thought, Oh, it's a, it's a, the atheist Da Vinci code or something like that. It's interesting. Cause I've heard some people point to Da Vinci code as sort of the unfortunate starting point for QAnon that that started that mindset of, Oh, there are all these little details and they mean things. And if you keep searching, you'll find the meaning. And I do feel like Mitchell has, whether by accident or just really kind of picking up on the intercurrents kind of made the ultimate QAnon movie with this. That to me is just that definitely that mindset, that creepy, like you mentioned, kind of insult point of view, misogynistic thing. And that arrogance of I'm the only one who can see it and can put it together. And the most ridiculous thing I can come up with, it's absolutely true. And I can prove it because this and this and this, see, it's all there. Another filmmaker that this reminded me of, and I went back and watched were Richard Linklater movies like a slacker, and Scanner Darkly and Waking uh, Life, movies that I enjoy. And I, you know, and I think back on Slacker and the X-Files the same way, that the conspiracy stuff and the, the wild theories were, were fun and amusing and they were colorful people. But now, now Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is representing <laughs> how many people in the... Like, this isn't funny anymore. It's not amusing when you've got actual power. Uh, you know, when you're just some stoner on the uh, corner or, or some, some old, old guy with no, you know, some burnout with uh, no actual power. Yeah, you're amusing and, and maybe even fun to listen to. Uh, but yeah, it kind of spoils some of that stuff. And oh, and the other thing was, uh, like I didn't know Alex Jones was in um, Slackers. <laughs> yeah, some of it's not that amusing <laughs> anymore. But I, I don't blame Richard Linklater for that. But uh, yeah, he was a a real item around Austin. I think that's where the connection came from. One movie I kept finding myself associating this with was Ryan Johnson's Brick, because again, you have this hero trying to find this this woman who's vanished who really doesn't want to be found, and. The same thing of it's it's sort of taking the old film noir tropes and tweaking them for this modern age. But also you have a lead character who he's charismatic because in both cases you have charismatic actors, Andrew Garfield, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But he's a really toxic and unhealthy person who you really wouldn't want to be around. In that case, he's obsessive and chasing this girl and physically abusive. And with Garfield, we certainly have hints of him basically doing having all those traits. Well, it's like he's a creep. Topher Grace is a creep. When we meet this Alan character, he's kind of a creep wearing that that bizarro shirt. I still don't know what's going on with the shirt that he's wearing. Any of his shirts. They're all weird. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, you could write a whole thesis paper just around people's T-shirts and regular shirts in this movie because, you know, you're talking about, you know, here's this guy with these animals showing up again. And yeah, they, they're constant. 
when he spots the coyote, you know, he's gone to bed and he spots the coyote out his window and he follows the coyote to a party. He walks in the swank party in his pajamas. The woman says to him as he walks and she's, I like your shirt. And he's just wearing a plain white t-shirt, you know, that he went to bed in. <laughs> I talked a lot about triples in this, but there's the doubles, the double women that both have double cherries and they look like, are they pin cushions? That's what those reminded me of. Yeah, because he pulls out a pin that he's supposed to pop the balloon girl's balloons with as part of her performance. Thank you. I did not make that connection. Because he sees wow. that all the balloons are popped and he just kind of looks at the pin and throws it over his shoulder when realizing, oh, too late. It's purgatory. Welcome to purgatory, they say, and they offer the fruit. And I, it gets to, I think, you know, speaking of an atheist's Vinci code or something like that, there's also kind of a Paradise Lost uh, story going on. We understand that Silverdale, or I'm sorry, Silver Lake was once called Edendale. Garden of Eden they're in. Uh, the, the girl talks about a party she went to where, you know, it was, it was this exclusive wealthy neighborhood where you could just walk in and out of any place and do anything you wanted except for one house. You couldn't go there. It's like the tree of knowledge, you know, at the center of the garden. You can do anything except go there. And so that's the first, as soon as he knows about it. He goes there, and it's the songwriter's house. And the songwriter, part of the part of the the medley he plays is Inagata Davida, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden. And he takes the he takes the fruit. He takes the you know eats from the no- the tree of uh, the knowledge. And uh, yeah, he's he's expelled expelled from Edendale. And he, yeah, he's expelled from. He's, his he's evicted. I think that's intentional. <laughs> And then that you have Jesus hanging around here, and Jesus is just one of the most despicable people in here. It's just like, what is this guy's deal? Really good casting. I have to say that the actor that plays Jesus has a really interesting look, and there's a lot of great faces in here, but his was one of the best. He has one of my favorite line deliveries, too, when Sam's trying to get information about, you know, which songs this songwriter wrote, and like, so he wrote all your hits, and he's like, no need to belittle me, man. (laughs) Yeah, I was so happy with that line. That was great. <laughs> a balloon girl, too. You know who that is? That's the actress uh, Grace Van Patten. That was something else that, that occurred to me watching. The, there were a trio of ladies who I know mostly by who their fathers are. Grace Van Patten is the daughter of Tim Van Patten, uh, the director and producer of a bunch of HBO shows, you know, like uh, Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire and things like that. But I think I saw her in uh, is that Noah Baumbach movie, the Meyerowitz stories, and it was like, oh, she's. You know, I said, who's this? And it was Tim Van Patten's daughter, uh, Riley Keough, of course, is Elvis Presley's granddaughter, and um, Jojo Mamet, Jojo Mamet, David Mamet, and Lindsay Krause's daughter. Yeah, it was. I remember reading about. Uh, the casting of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and apparently most of the Manson girls had some sort of nepotism tie. You know, they they all they all came from famous parents, and I, I thought that was that was interesting. But but I wondered about the casting of you know I don't mean to disparage any of these actresses. They're they're certainly certainly fine performers, but um, but that's my first association with them with all of them is oh I know your dad. You know, know where you come from. And uh, 
the one person I didn't mention that I know fairly well is Sky Elabar, who's the bookstore clerk. (laughs) And him I know more from his voice than from his face, because I'm used to him being a lot heavier from the Greasy Strangler. And I don't know if he just specifically put on weight for that role, because I've never seen him that heavy ever again. And this he's skinny, which was made before. And then afterwards, when I see him posting on Facebook, he is super thin again. I'm just like, wow. But yeah, I, I love that guy. So I was super happy when he showed up. I didn't recognize him until I, I saw you made a note who, who he was. And I was like, who is this guy? And then I remembered Greasy Strangler and was traumatized by remembering that movie again. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit, Bullshit artist. artist. Yeah. I love the Greasy Strangler so much. I think that that performance is probably uh, probably a lot of posture uh, for, you know, the way he looks looks overweight and, and heavy in that. But the uh, the other actor that just absolutely made my day being in it is uh, David Yao, being the, the homeless king. Um, he's the lead singer of a band called The Jesus Is He's one of those guys like, say, Larry Fessenden or something like that. Who, if he shows up in your movie, you know it's a really good sign. And not only is he a cool cameo, I think it's a fantastic performance. I crack up over his uh, line deliveries uh, in that, you know, when um, you know, I saw you uh, rubbing the statue's head and... He's like wiping his nose. Who are you? I'm the homeless king. Really? He's so personable. He's he's so likable and nice. That that moment of, you know, well, most people are kind of aware of it, but son, do you know that you kind of have an odor? <laughs> I like that by the end with that last scene where he has him chained up in the chair, he's almost sort of the moral arbiter of the movie. It's like he really wants to convince this guy that he's not the the dog killer. And this guy seems really upset about this idea that he might be. He's one of my favorite, favorite reasons to rewatch the film. I'd like to see a whole Homeless King movie. I had to pick one character from this great ensemble of, of bizarre bizarre people to focus on more David Yow as, as the Homeless King. It's like the way that we're talking, I'm not saying that this stuff makes sense, but there's so much stuff that doesn't make sense in this movie, and I, I'm not sure exactly why this is here. The Owl's Kiss, Jed, I think you mentioned Owl's Kiss already, and it's like, so this is now we're like in the supernatural with this woman with an owl head and a knife and just going around killing people, Patrick Fischler going after Sam. But then the way that she just jets when he pulls a gun on her, I'm like, well, if she's really supernatural. That shouldn't make a difference. But then she disappears. So I'm like, OK, she's supernatural or not. I'm not really sure, but makes me I can't say upset. It just concerns me for like. 20 seconds and then I'm done with it and I move on to the next thing. And that's kind of how this whole movie is paced. I have a couple of theories involving her. First of all, there's the whole symbolism of owls as being like wisdom. So maybe she's sort of the reality that Sam and the co- the comic guy sort of feared to actually confront that all this stuff is bullshit. There's also owls in secret of secret societies, especially that the fact that it's the mascot of the Bohemian club, that weird cabal of, you know, very, elite people who decide all of all of society and with what the comic guy was saying about how you know she is a symbol of sort of the finance world and she all financial transactions are approved by her because she's on your dollar bills that maybe that maybe she's an assassin for these groups and she's taking away people who get taking out people who might suspect anything or maybe she's sort of sam's fear of women in a weird way 
since, I mean, she's this incredibly alluring woman. Maybe, since we don't really know objectively she exists yet, Sam sees her on the video, but we're not sure if he's actually listening that. Maybe it turns out the comic guy did commit suicide, and that's what she symbolizes. And she's this this lingering thing in the background of Sam that he might end up committing suicide. Because by the end of the movie, there's a moment where he's sitting on the couch with the gun, where it seems like that might be exactly what he's going to do. Something I passed over pretty quickly said something about her uh, symbolizing suicide. And yeah, Sam, when she's in his apartment is when he's there on his bed with the gun that he, you know, he took off of the songwriter who just, you know, really crushed him with uh, the revelation that, you know, Kurt Cobain didn't write Smells Like Teen Spirit. And, and so, yeah, he's despondent and which would make sense why she would disappear because he's suddenly angry enough to live. <laughs> so, that, you know, that could explain why she runs away from him and, and we don't see her ever again. Or why he's doesn't seem particularly concerned about standing in his apartment. It's funny, you mentioned that look on his face at the end of the film. And it's, I mean, it's such a Kuleshov moment, let's call it. Because for me, I was seeing on his, that was really the time where I thought to myself, oh, he's the dog killer. I saw a look on his face that was just like, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to revel in murdering dogs. Like that's, I just got this very evil sense from him smoking that cigarette, not wearing a shirt, looking back at his apartment and just kind of, to me, it was almost like he's laughing at the manager and the sheriff. Yeah. I didn't mean to suggest that uh, everything was okay with the world, but he seemed more comfortable with who he was and where, what his place in life was. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that would make sense if that uh, read on him, you know, was was correct for you, then that, yeah, I don't think that that uh, is different than what I was seeing. Whatever the piece is he's made with who he is, he seems to have made made some decision. He's achieved some level of comfort and, you know, in his own skin. I got a different sense of resolution from it. One, that he's leaving behind all of his pop culture stuff. He's now in this apartment that doesn't have any of that. He's leaving that all behind. But also, that moment where he's looking at the landlord looking at the hobo code. And he's like, what the hell is this? And that little smile maybe suggesting that now he's part of a mystery. He's just the same way that Sarah was. He's disappeared. People are going to wonder what happened to him. He's kind of disappeared into mystery the way she has. So it's like it follows. You're passing out. Exactly. <laughs> openness to a conspiracy theory. We discussed that watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I do love Rex Lynn in that role. He's so great. He's one of these guys who last year I did a couple of um, podcasts in a row where I watched Rex Lynn movies. And, you know, he just really popped in both of those roles and watching them back to back, you know, just made me kind of zero in on, on what a value he, he is to, <laughs> to a film. And I love him in this role. Not a lot to do, but does a lot with, with what he's got. And the sheriff too, the woman who plays the sheriff, she's fantastic in that role. She's got this really terrible job, but she brings a level of uh, sort of dignity to to it in a, a human warmth that uh, is is lacking in, um, in so many of the other characters. The way she snaps back and I'm like, I'm handling this. Don't get greedy. 
That's amazing. If memory serves, Rex Lynn was the character, like the best character ever for me, which was the guy from Cliffhanger <laughs> who almost completely foils everything right off the bat. Like he's, he does not go down without a fight. I'm just like, this guy's fucking awesome. Travers, yeah, he's yeah. Cliffhanger was one of the movies I was covering. Nice, on <laughs> he ran so well in that one. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I just was waiting for him to like yell at somebody to shut the hell up because that's the kind of character actor he is. You know, I always remember him as the cop from Breakdown and just the way he's shutting down Kurt Russell's weird sounding conspiracy theories in that movie. <laughs> I like too that he he's left the note or, or someone from the. Uh, apartment complex has left the note on his sam's door at the beginning of the film you know you're going to be evicted in five days unless you can pay it's clearly worded you know exactly what it means and he pays no attention to it the only messages he's interested in are incredibly cryptic and he will not hear anything you say to him plainly when the songwriter says that's okay that you didn't get the message it wasn't meant for you not along to the music he's, he's so concerned with other people understanding things that he doesn't what will he do with this understanding is a totally different question because the things that are so easy to understand he doesn't do anything with <laughs> what does it matter if if you figure out what this incredible incredibly cryptic shit means if you don't do anything with stuff you know what it means and he doesn't know why vanna white moves her eyes in this particular direction but he's gonna watch ancient vhs tapes of wheel of fortune or i think this was when she was winning a beauty contest just to track her eyes i'm like holy shit man even in conspiracy theory circles that's out there do you know who i really admire janet gainer her connection to the whole thing, of course, as the star of Seventh Heaven and the ultimate destination of Riley Keough character is Seventh Heaven. Is there something else about Gaynor that, that I'm not not understanding? I'm not sure. We've got him waking up in front of her grave. We've got her artwork in there. And then this whole thing of his mom taping a movie and sending it to him and as he's watching that and to your point has the gun on one lap he's on one leg he's got something else on the other it's like all of the artifacts from his quest are laid out before him to me it's like oh he's so peaceful right now and i love how you guys are like oh yeah he's gonna commit suicide i'm like okay yeah i guess that that kind of works but these moments with Janet Gaynor, I'm not exactly sure what they're going for here. One thing, it would be interesting if it's that moment in the movie he's watching where she's talking about happiness and, you know, don't look down, look up. If this little bit of pop culture is the thing that saves his life and stops him from killing himself, in which case it kind of goes against what the songwriter said. And then pop culture does have meaning beyond this old guy making money off of it. When I watched Seventh Evan preparing for this and it is about a guy in a low station of life it's about two people in low stations of life who you know literally like he works the the main character in the the movie works in the sewers under the city he wants to be a street sweeper above ground is his big ambition (laughs) 
Sam is very, very concerned with his social status. I'm not sure because Janet Gaynor did do things like paint and I don't know. Is there more to her that you know, I understand she's the recipient of the first Academy Award for Best Actress and Seventh Heaven was nominated for Best Picture and Frank Borzage was nominated for Best Director and so you know it was a, it was a significant film but mostly I got the Jefferson Seventh Heaven out of it you know just the cheap plan words that's always my first go to maybe David Robert Mitchell's mom was a fan and that's why we did notice that the envelope that she sends the tape in you can see it on the table at the end and it's from mitchell's hometown clausen michigan because i didn't think it was ever explicit i mean that makes it explicit but you know i assumed he was not from la that he had moved out there but it's never never you know that would be the only thing that actually confirms it because he you know her his mom could be calling from in town the one piece of set decoration that i found a little bit interesting for me was when we when we see him having sex with the girl the very first time and we're getting that look at the Kurt Cobain poster over there and then we pull back and you know getting a little bit more and I'm looking at his walls and looking at the posters but I'm also seeing all of the squares where there were there was art before it feels like he had moved into somebody's apartment that had been there for years and years and years and probably died there. And this is him like trying to claim the space, but doing one of the worst jobs ever. I also thought maybe that had been pictures of him and his ex-girlfriend. that He doesn't seem to have gotten over, but that would suggest that he'd been there for quite a while. So my wife noticed something weird in that first shot as the camera's kind of craning through the hallway into the room as they're having sex. If you look at that chair, that's kind of in the corner there's like clothes in it and a shoe next to it, but it actually looks like there's somebody sitting there watching them. And when you get the reverse shot, you can see it's just clothes and shoes on the floor. But there's a second where it really looks like there's somebody sitting there. It's creepy as hell. <laughs> Talking about the director coming from Colossan, going out and, you know, he's got the success of It Follows, which I, if memory serves, that was all shot around here as well. He goes out to Los Angeles. He makes this very Los Angeles movie. I'm wondering how much he's having to put up with things and like get used to the Hollywood lifestyle. What really got me was when he is Sam is having this conversation with the old man who's about to be entombed and the guy's like, well, you know, you're going to be stuck here. You might as well make the best of it. And then there's a cut to the Hollywood <laughs> sign. It's a strange cut because we know he's by the Hollywood sign, but I mean, it cuts real close to that Hollywood sign. And then we cut back to Andrew Garfield as if you were like looking at that right then. I was just like, wow, that seems a little much a message from the director of all things. That's a weird pattern of cutting I've noticed in Mitchell's other movies, too, that in the middle of a conversation, we'll suddenly cut to the grass. There's a moment here where he's talking with his bar buddy friend during the drone scene where we suddenly cut to the tree when he's in mid-conversation, almost like his characters are kind of, their focus is drifting and they're just kind of looking off into other things. I remember it in It Follows, too, when the main character just starts looking at the grass and lining up leaves in the middle of this heavy conversation. Maybe that's a Terrence Malick influence. Yeah, that's very fascinating because there was one moment I seem to remember, and I was trying to look in the notes to see if I pointed it out, where 
I think we were looking at Sam, and then there's just a cut to something else, and then we come back to Sam, like, same angle, same everything, and I was like, was that an edit for time? Were there lines in there that got removed, and this was the only way to cover it? Like, there wasn't a reverse shot or something? But now that you say that, it's like, yeah, that kind of fits in with that pattern where you would just cut to something else and then cut back. We think it was a reference, too, that Sam has these sticky fingers and he's holding on to a Spider-Man comic. I read it was in the script before he was cast, but Mitchell is actually like, do you want me to cut it? And Garfield's like, no, no, leave it in. Leave it in. It's funny. (laughs) Apparently, that issue is one where... Is it Gwen Stacy or one of the Spider-Man girlfriends comes back to life? Like she's been, she's been dead and, and she comes back to life in that issue. So I think that happened multiple times with her. She's never far from his mind. I, I do want to talk a little bit about Garfield in this part, because I mean, coming after he was just coming out of the Spider-Man movies and he took a, a drubbing from the fanboys for that one. And I really got to give him credit for the stuff he did after that. I mean, Hacksaw Ridge, whatever you think about Mel Gibson, he was really trying there, working with Scorsese in silence. And then this, where this movie does not work without him in that role, because you need somebody charismatic for the audience to lock on to. No offense, but if you can imagine Jared Leto playing this part, I don't think this could stomach this movie. But Garfield just has this weird amiability that even when this character is doing gross, horrible stuff, you're kind of compelled to follow him in a weird way. Trying to think what, I think it was 99 Homes is the one that I said, oh man, I actually really like this guy. Yeah, I was I resisted him in the first few things I saw him in, and I had to go back and watch him again and say, no, 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 I like him. He's likable enough on some level that his character is not, you know, <laughs> it, and it's all the performance and, and none of the uh, character that you lean on for that. So yeah, he's, he's really doing good i almost equated to george clooney after batman where after that one he's like all right i've got to shift things up and he started working with the coen brothers and not taking himself seriously and there's a lot of scenes in this where garfield is just doing things to look ridiculous his nonchalant run when he's trying to sneak up on anybody in this movie it's so goofy and silly and he he just fully commits to it yeah he is not going for glamour in this just that shitty mustache that he's wearing through some of it where it's like dude you just need to shave and Yeah, he's really putting it out there. Not having the pressure of the Spider-Man role is what made, for me, my favorite turn of his. Him coming back in the last Spider-Man movie, he just seemed so relaxed and seemed like he was just having such a good time. Like, I genuinely believed that he was Peter Parker at that moment. And I don't think I believe that he was Peter Parker for through those first two films. I liked him in the first two, but yeah, in no way home. He gets for me, a lot of the best moments in that movie. And I just love that. He's been having such a great couple of years. Eyes of Tammy Faye, tick, tick, boom. He's just on a roll. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. All right, we are back and talking about Under the Silver Lake. And when we were talking via email about this film... I think I mentioned or somebody mentioned the 
vibes from this were very similar to Inherent Vice. So that was one that I rewatched. And then as I'm watching that, I'm just thinking of this kind of, you know, I mentioned Philip Marlowe, the Gould interpretation earlier, this kind of like slacker noir type of thing where it's, I'd say Marlowe's kind of the exception to this because he actually is a detective, but so many other times, and I suppose Doc from Inherent Vice, like his profession is detective, but he just seems like a dude, you know, and he seems like the dude, you know, it feels like the dude is part of this, this, you know, reluctant detective. I was even thinking all the way back to, and I know this isn't that long ago, but dude, where's my car? Cause these guys are basically unraveling a whole conspiracy theory with aliens and all this stuff. I really like these characters like that are the reluctant detectives that really shouldn't be detectives that are very unreliable. Like, you know, we don't know if Andrew Garfield is a dog killer or not. And, you know, he's unreliable. They're unreliable. You just don't know. Like, the dude never does the right thing. You know, he's always trying to. And then when he thinks that he's got everything under control, that's when the world turns upside down. I just really like this whole idea of these people that are forced to become detectives that really aren't made for the job. Did you ever see one called Cold Weather, directed by Aaron Katz? That was one that I wanted to revisit for this, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a very low key, uh, you know, sort of mumblecore mystery movie. But it's yeah, it's just about a guy who I think he likes Sherlock Holmes books or something, and just likes to talk about them and and stumbles onto something that seems like maybe he could apply his <laughs> knowledge of the way. Sherlock Holmes mysteries worked. He applies himself to it in a very sort of half-hearted way, and then it you know starts traction. And by the end of the movie, it's a little alarming how accurate it is. It's a pretty unassuming movie. The director has followed it up with another sort of L.A. noir hipster movie I liked quite a bit called Gemini with Lola Kirk and Zoe Kravitz and John Cho. Oh, I saw that saw one. That. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, so that one is the definitely, I mean, that was a kind of a really beautiful movie. I mean, a low budget thing, but, you know, it's just full of neon and beautiful LA locale. But, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend checking out Colder. If you like the sort of slacker detectives that, you know, sort of is it or isn't it a conspiracy? That's a good one. Tim, you mentioned Brick earlier, and that really fits into that as well. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not a professional detective in that, but he plays that role. And I almost feel like these slacker detectives, they operate in worlds that are so bizarre with such weird characters, they kind of have to have that detachment to be able to survive. I think a normal, like Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe character in this world just wouldn't be able to hack it. I think it would just drive them insane. These characters have that sort of, huh, all right break away from reality that lets them kind of drift through these plots. And Mike, one that I wouldn't have thought of immediately, but you brought up earlier, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think it also fits in there because, uh, I mean, certainly Shane Black is playing with the tropes of the genre the same way Thomas Pinchon or Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coens are, their takes on it. But, you know, he's a the Downey Jr. character is not a detective. And he's, you know, he's kind of just riffing on knowledge and, and certainly the Harmony character in there is riffing on knowledge of, well, I know how this works because I've read a lot of books and, and I've seen a lot of movies. 
So I think that that also applies here. And plus, it's it's so meta, uh, almost to the same degree that that that, the, that under the Silver Lake is, and it's all its inscrutable references and, and self. You know, the the way everything fits together to everything means something, even though it doesn't mean much. It, it, it's all there for a reason. Yeah, you mentioned Pynchon, and like obviously, I was mentioning Inherit Vice earlier, but even going back to Crying of Lot 49, and our main character in that is very much a reluctant detective trying to unravel all of these things and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on, this unraveling her own conspiracy. I kept thinking of another book, one of my favorites, Richard Brodigan's Dreaming of Babylon, which has a subtitle of A Private Eye Novel. 1942 that one is so much fun it's the detective's name is smith smith he's like that unimaginative (laughs) and he keeps dreaming like like the title says he keeps dreaming of babylon he keeps dreaming that he's in this better place a place that he'd much rather be because when he comes back to reality he's a private eye who is so poor that he can only afford one bullet for his gun and it's really it's stranger and stranger and stranger as it goes through. And that's, you know, kind of like all these movies where you just don't know what's going to turn up next. This one kind of brought me back to Death is a Lonely Business, the Ray Bradbury one, where there you have this autobiographical character who's kind of like Sam. He's trying to be a writer in Hollywood. He's struggling. He has the terrible apartment. He can barely afford the rent finds this corpse in the canal and is convinced that it's a serial killer. And of course, most people are like, no, what's the matter with you? Just leave it. And goes on the same type of investigation with all these bizarre characters. And like this movie, it has that same sense of death of Venice Beach sort of dying and all these old Hollywood types who are slowly dying off. All right, we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show. Give this clown enough to cover any damage. You'll get it back in a couple hours. Come on. Introducing Alex Cutter. You're kind of sexy. Do you have an appointment? Hey, Alex, how do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? Black's rich. Cutter's wife, Mo. The um, Richard Bone fan club is now complete. This, for instance, is a tomato. Food, huh? Yeah, I remember food. People used to have to eat it during the Prohibition, didn't they? Occasionally for days on end. Cutter's best friend. My charger's got a bad battery, but will I do? (laughs) Oh, no, you're too old. (laughs) Richard Bone. Buy some vitamin E. Well... It's been better for me, too. He's drunk. I have to give that another try. What makes you say that? Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. That's him. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own, and 
That includes me. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. Tell what are you going to do? It's not a question of what I'm going to do. It's a question of what you're going to do with the time you got left. I'd say that you're the one that ought to be very, very careful, not us. You're the witness, remember? I've got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, and Lisa Eichhorn in Cutter's Way, a film by Yvonne Passer from UA Classics. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Yvonne Passer's Cutter's Way. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jedediah and Tim. So, Jedediah, what is the latest with you? I am finally working on something again. I can't talk about it, though. But uh, I am happy to be working on a project. Uh, in the meantime, I'm guest appearing on, on various movie podcasts that you can find out about if you follow me on Twitter at JedediahAirs. And Tim, what's going on with you? Uh, well, we're still churning out episodes with our movie podcast, Cinemaspection. It's at uh, www.cinemaspection.com. By the time this airs, we'll be kind of formulating our episodes for next year. We're hoping to get to like Blue Thunder and uh, Sam Raimi's Quick and the Dead. So that'll be fun. Beyond that, I have no idea what we're going to be covering, but we'll see. It'll be good. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like The Shabby Detective. Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Rankin on Bass. You can find all those over at www.weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
In closing tonight, a personal note, if I may. Over the weekend, as some of you may have already heard or read, I was assaulted with violence on a Manhattan street. Why and exactly by whom remains unclear, and it may never be determined. Perhaps it was just another one of those bizarre and frightening incidents that seem to happen from time to time in our country and elsewhere. I do know that I was luckier than many other Americans who've been victims of violent crime, and for that I'm very thankful. Aside from a little stiffness and some bumps and bruises, I'm feeling fine. I just want to thank those who came to my aid and all of you who have written or called to express your concern. We'll see you here again tomorrow night. Good night.